¿Cómo Perdóname, es? yo prefiero, ¿Cómo digamos, es? la libertad peligrosa a que, digamos, una esclavitud. He also questions Argentina's free public health care and education systems. An open border is not a border. Parents determine the education of their children. Nuclear family is the greatest. Just like Nixon did not trust Mao, we still had to pull Mao Zedong out of the hands of the USSR. I don't trust Putin any more than Putin trusts us. Do you want to take his word that he'll divorce himself from China? This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Multipolarity covers the economic and geopolitical consequences of the shift to a multipolar world order. For this reason, we mostly concentrate on international relations and macroeconomics. However, it's important to understand that the same deep forces that are driving the transition to a multipolar world order are also driving dissatisfaction with the domestic political, social, and economic systems by which the Western world is run. This, in turn, is bringing political outsiders to the fore. As these people smash the Overton window, this helps further weaken the unipolar system itself, which in turn opens space for yet more political outsiders as domestic instability and international reordering feed on each other. In recent weeks, two political figures have emerged who offer superb examples of this. In America, Vivek Ramaswamy, an entrepreneur, has surged into third place in the race to be Republican Party candidate for president. He's gained media notoriety for his revolutionary plans for the US administrative state and his realist, decidedly multipolar foreign policy. In Argentina, meanwhile, Javier Malay, an Austrian school economist of a libertarian bent, has drawn comparisons with former US President Donald Trump for his less than temperate delivery and his popularist platform. This month, he won the first round of the Argentinian presidential elections and he's now firm favourite to be the next head of state of Argentina. We'll examine not so much Ramaswamy and Malay themselves, but their ideas, which are drawn from political theories which were long since pushed outside the Overton window, and ask what other forgotten ideas might rise through the cracks in the Western superstructure. Philip, I, I think a really good place to start is with Vivek Ramaswamy. He really, I think, has captured uh, somehow a great deal of the not quite dissident thought on the right, but certainly the kind of um, the non-mainstream rights ideas, whether it be his views on quite revolutionary reform or, or, or just breaking asunder altogether the U.S. administrative state. But in the last day or two, his you know, very avowedly realist foreign policy. There's no room for morality there. And uh, you've been looking into that latter piece. Yeah, so Vivek um, wrote this piece or you know, co-wrote it or whatever, it's under his name, uh, for the American conservative. It's titled A Viable Realism and Revival Doctrine, Washington, Monroe, and Nixon Equals America First. I think it's a really it's a really impressive piece of writing, really. I don't agree with everything in it. I think there's a lot of issues it raises and potential problems with the game plan, but it is easily the most impressive document on foreign policy that I've seen, I don't know in how long, from America, maybe ever. Um, but it's also coming, obviously, at a time when these enormous changes 
are happening in the world that we've been tracking over the course of this show. So um, they've really got out in front of this, uh, the team on, on uh, that are behind Vivek. Of course, people, some people will say, well, Vivek Ramaswamy isn't going to win the presidency. Um, but, you know, Vivek has been very careful throughout his campaign not to set himself up as a rival to Donald Trump. So um, I think there's a non-zero probability that uh, Vivek's uh, article here might be a little bit of a trial balloon for a future um, uh, foreign policy uh, document from Donald Trump. And even if people say, oh, well, Donald Trump, you know, is indicted or um, uh, he'd be dysfunctional if he won or anything like that. Yeah, but, you know, pay attention because uh, Donald Trump's policies, uh, especially with regard to foreign policy, seem to uh, be opposed and then adopted by Washington. Obviously, the situation that we have now with a lot of um, aggressive feelings around China and Taiwan, well, Trump is the one that brought us that. So um, a lot of the Trump ideas, industrial policy, reshoring, and so on, have actually penetrated into D.C. because whatever you think of Trump, he brought with him some new ideas, and D.C. was in a very, very uh, stagnant state uh, when he got there, which partially explains probably his election. So the fact that um, uh, Ramaswamy is already quite adjacent to Trump, I would say. I won't care to speculate on his political ambitions in a potential Trump administration, but he's definitely adjacent to Trump. Uh, he's been very uh, keen not to criticize him. And um, and the the ideas, as I say, that, that Trump tends to promote often become conventional wisdom within two to three to four years. Um, and there are reasons for that, of course. It's because the uh, you know people see uh, insurgent candidates like this as an opportunity to push ideas uh, through into the into the public public forum. So we can we can go into the um, the document that he's produced. Uh, I think in some detail. I think um, I think it's very interesting. They've they've uh, he's laid out. I mean, just to give some broad sense, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Um, what what they've done, the team or Vivek, whoever's put this together, is that they've um, they've they've both drawn on past strategies that the Americans that the Americans have used, uh, drawing on George Washington, uh, Monroe, James Monroe, uh, the Monroe Doctrine, which we'll discuss shortly, and especially uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, who was thought to be one of the more realist foreign policy strategists of the 20th century. I actually agree with Vivek that um, that uh, uh, Richard Nixon was probably the best president for foreign policy in recent American history, um, although he gets a bad rap because, I don't know, a burglar stole a tape or something. Um, joking. Um, but anyway, look, well, I, I, I guess to start it off, um, there's a lot here. What What stood out to you? Well, the first thing that stood out to me is that uh, I've said many times on this podcast and in some of the uh, Twitter spaces that we've done that as the world shifts from a unipolar to a multipolar world order, um, the relative importance of security and morality in foreign policy will switch. Well, they'll switch places. In a unipolar world order, the uh, the single global power in the system has nobody really to worry about. What it says goes. It doesn't have any threats by very definition because the system is unipolar and it has no uh, bulwark or opposing force pushing against its extension of power within certain 
um, within certain restricted uh, ideas with that. That allows the ideology of that single great power to become important when setting foreign policy. And indeed, that's exactly what we've seen over the last 30 years. We have seen um, the liberal, uh, democratic, free trade ideology that prevails in the United States and has done for at least a century, um, really coming to the fore uh, within their foreign policy. And we've mentioned it directly in that sense, in a kind of theoretical point of view, but we've also seen individual instances of that, whether it be, you know, trying to impose um, social conditions on IMF loans, for example, or whether it be um, intervening in certain countries uh, based on the system of government they have or their social policy or whatever. We even see it happening with American allies. We saw recently with Hungary um, certain uh, efforts there to counterbalance the more uh, traditional conservative views of uh, Viktor Orban. However, we all believe on this podcast that the world is has probably already shifted, but is certainly shifting ever more so toward a multipolar world order. And in that system, security is more important because the uh, global power from the unipolar uh, system now does have real rivals. It does have peer competitors. It does have restrictions on its ability to act and its strategic room for maneuver. And therefore, it'll tend to prioritize its own security. It's, it's all well and good going for morality when it you know, you have no rivals, but suddenly you do. That rivalry suddenly becomes very important because, uh, in you know, in morality, you're kind of uh, putting security as second place, okay? So I think Ramaswamy is the canary in the coal mine when it comes to that. What he's done is he's outlined a very traditional view of U.S. realism, what's in the U.S. national interest, nakedly so. There's, there's, there's no room for being friends with Ukraine there or standing up to dictatorships there or anything like that. It's all about the U.S. interest. And I think that this is the first time that that kind of view has been articulated by a, you know, a reasonably serious U.S. candidate for president or a prominent one at least in so much detail. We've had people like Trump who kind of implied it in the past. Um, people like DeSantis who have also spoken less about kind of neoconservatism or in less glowing terms about neoconservatism and liberal interventionism um, than the standard candidate. But this Ramaswamy's um, uh, kind of outlining of his foreign policy platform is the first time that realism has put, been put in concrete terms in the uh, the de facto manifesto of a US political candidate. So I think, first of all, this is an important landmark to bear in mind. And, uh, and in my view, that's going to be something that will be increasingly commonplace in future. If multipolarity continues going in the way that you and I expect it to, Philip, I think this will be within 10 years, the received wisdom among a lot of US politicians. But it, it, it's important to note the very fact that he's done it, as, it himself is a kind of confirmation of many of the things that we're saying. I think you're right about that this is the first time it's been done in, in this level of specificity. Obviously, Trump kind of alluded to 
some of these things, as you say. In the 90s, Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan also signaled in this direction, probably in, in a more intellectual manner than Trump did. But I think the reason that the that the level of specificity is needed today is because when when Perot or Buchanan were talking in the in the early to mid nineties, they could really just allude to the fact that you know we shouldn't be doing these policing ventures beyond a certain point, or uh, you know we we shouldn't be involved in X, Y, and Z. So you didn't actually need that much of an explanation. If you had a unipolar moment, if the Cold War was gone, you know you have two options on the table. You can either have this kind of global policeman stance which becomes more and more interventionist over time or you can go back to american uh not isolationism but you know as you say foreign policy realism it didn't actually require that much explanation in practice and and actually i'd say um even when trump first came along in 2016 uh, in retrospect we now know many of the forces that are driving the multipolar world were actually already in place and we just didn't see them but uh, at the time it felt still that you you were in that relatively in that same place as in you know the early to mid 90s and you could just say yeah okay it's binary we can either intervene or not intervene and we're going with non-interventionist now it's very clear that there's emerging power rivalries. And so you need a very specific uh, um, document or you need a very specific plan, in a sense, to deal with these. And that's what Ramaswamy has produced here. And it's very impressive. So I think the best thing to do really is to go through it point by point and maybe give some commentary on it. Beyond the kind of fairly obvious, almost realist boilerplate of we don't want to spend tons of money, we don't want to... Uh, prop up uh, our allies um, who who aren't willing to spend the money, and we don't want to go and you know we don't want this role as as permanent intervener in the world. Okay, we we we've all heard that stuff before, so there's no point in going back into it. So, what does he concretely say on the first point? Uh, is is China and um, Ramaswamy views the China situation through the lens of Nixon, which is apropos because Nixon went to China famously. But he flips it on its head. He says that when Nixon went to China, he was dealing with Chairman Mao, who was awful. <laughs> Ramaswamy calls him the greatest butcher of the 20th century. I, I know that is slightly open to debate because some of many of the deaths were famines and so on. Mao's definitely up there as one of the big killers of the 20th century. By all accounts, he was a bit of a lunatic. Um, he was pretty crazy, is my understanding too. He like didn't brush his teeth, and he he was a weird guy. Um, so he was dealing. He was with also a brilliant general, by the way. You know, people often forget about that. He 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 was not in the traditional Western sense, not in the not in the same way as uh, you know von Clausewitz would have it. But you know, in his own way, he was that long march through the Chinese uh, countryside and the his eventual victory over. Uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek is, is hugely impressive. Yeah, he was an impressive military leader. I think that's fair to say. Uh, in terms of Clausewitz, uh, he did actually write essays. Mao wrote essays. I've read many of Mao's essays uh, on contradiction as one that springs to mind. They're absolute rubbish. Um, so, uh, really, real nonsense. He he, he was clearly uh, he clearly had some mental imbalance or something. I think noted. But anyway, we won't we won't won't harp on it. The point is that Nixon recognized that Mao was what he was, 
And yet he went to China for the very simple reason that he saw China as the center of the Sino-Soviet split. And he said, okay, uh, I can use this to buttress our stance against the Soviet Union. So I'm going to hold my nose, maybe literally, because Mao didn't brush his teeth. I'm, I'm going to just shake hands with these people and we're going to not be allies, but we're going to get on. And I'm going to ensure that that Sino-Soviet split remains for as long as possible. And it remained basically until the end of the Cold War. So it worked. And of course, by the way, he's not only making that decision based on on not taking a moral stance uh, to, the, to the Maoist regime in China. America had just been defeated in, in Vietnam and uh, the biggest backer of the one of the biggest one of the big backers of the North Vietnamese army were, were the Chinese, obviously. So, so you know, there was a lot that they had to the, the, the Americans had to swallow to do this. Okay, so how does that relate uh, for Vivek to the world today? Well, he wants to flip it on its head, as I said. He wants to. He says that I will lead America from moralism to realism by executing the inverse of what Putin or of what Nixon did in 1972 I will go to Moscow in 2025 so this is something that people talked about a lot before the war in Ukraine a lot of the realist people thought that um, thought that America should be uh, in some sort of um, an agreement or pot- up to and including potentially an alliance with Russia to balance against China and its influence. Um, So this isn't something new, but um, I think there hasn't been as much talk about that, obviously, since the war, because um, the Chinese and the Russians are now quite closely allied by all accounts, um, certainly on economic issues and increasingly on military issues. And obviously, we've just had the BRICS conference the obvious criticism of this is no one's talking about this anymore because the whole horse is already bolted. That you're you're not going to get Russia. How would you get Russia back? Vivek says that um, he's going to offer Putin uh, what he wants in Ukraine, which is uh, a neutrality, a no NATO membership for Ukraine, and the regions that the Russian army is currently occupying. And I think they've declared and handed out passports there. Well, I, I think Putin has a strong sense that he might get that anyway, first of all. And second of all, that was a fascinating discussion of Vivek's foreign policy. Nuanced, yet pithy. I wonder what the lads are going to say next. To listen to the rest of this episode, more than an hour of it, including a devastating critique of Javier Millet's dollarization ideas, simply sign up on Patreon. It's five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. 